Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices in Real Estate. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to visit with John Ram, who's the planning director for the city and county of San Francisco, where he's been since 2008. The real estate development issues in our rapidly changing great cities are today as hot as they've ever been. We're faced with rapid growth, rents in all asset classes rising, the threats of sea level rise and the issues of sustainability, the questions coming from the changes in our transportation infrastructure, including driverless cars, burgeoning homelessness, income inequality, and gentrification. NIMBYism and political gridlock limit the ability for development and proactive planning. And for the first time in my career, housing affordability is now a consistent headline in the press across the country. In the middle of these issues stand our public officials, both elected and government employees. This is certainly the case here in San Francisco. John Ram, the planning director here, is one of the most respected planning directors in the country, and he represents a city that certainly has its share of urban development challenges. In Leading Voices, we're trying to present viewpoints and career stories who, from wide backgrounds from throughout the real estate industry, are making a difference. I gave John a bit of an impossible task in our interview, asking him to speak to these issues, not just from the standpoint of his perch here in San Francisco, but also more generally thinking about the role of planning directors and their teams throughout the country and indeed throughout the world as cities continue to evolve and grow. This mandate was the high bar for the conversation, but a worthy one. I hope that you enjoy John and my conversation. As always, we welcome your feedback on our website, your ratings on the iTunes store, and feel free to email me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate podcast. I appreciate your joining me. You are the first planner that I have met on the podcast. I've, I've interviewed um, some uh, urban planning architects. I've interviewed mayors. I've interviewed developers, but not a planner and not a city planner and maybe not a city planner, certainly in one of the most, a city like San Francisco that has so much going on in densification and change right now. So, Good to be here, Matthew. Yeah, so thank you for being here. And John is the planning director for the city and county of San Francisco. In the conversation today, we're going to talk both about kind of your career, your pathway, what you know and think and have learned and wisdom you've gained about urban planning and the issues affecting our urban environments and change. And you're representing in some ways yourself as well as your industry. So all the folks who sit in your chairs in different cities, your buddies and friends and colleagues with these people. And I know to the real estate industry, you're both our heroes and sometimes our goats. We love you. We hate you. We suck up to you. And then we whisper behind your backs all at the same time. So thank you for being with me. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's great to be here. And so, John, let's kind of quickly start at the beginning. You grew up in Detroit. You grew up in the Detroit suburbs, and somehow you found your way into architecture and urban planning. Talk about that. Uh, glad to. Um, so I grew up in a near northern suburb of Detroit that um, was a kind of a blue-collar suburb, low-density kind of place that had, um, uh, even from a young age, I was frustrated by the lack of accessibility I had from that location growing up. Grew up on a street with no sidewalks, no streetlights, couldn't really walk anywhere at a young age. And my colleagues, or my I should say my classmates um, in school, because I went to school, both grade school and high school in the city, Right. I was jealous of their ability to kind of be more mobile, to ride their bikes, to walk to places and such. And um, 
And I remember feeling that at a very young age. And so when I got to high school, I went to a, the, the city's Jesuit high school, um, which included a day of community service. Uh-huh. Uh, as I think it was a senior class day. And, and that really kind of sort of tripped a switch for me, if you will, and sort of my interest in the city and understanding what the city was about and really got into that environment. Um, but I didn't know at that point what my pathway was. I knew that if I was interested in cities and buildings, it must be architecture that I should do, right? right. And that I should study, and so that, so I started my uh, in, uh, in college with, uh, with an architecture degree from the University of Michigan. And while growing up in the suburbs and commuting into the city for school, what was the city in decline? Was the city far from the miracle that, in some ways, it? it I don't know if miracle is the right word, but the last podcast episode and be released shortly. Um, is uh, with Jim Kitai from Bedrock Development, and they're the folks with Dan Gilbert, and they're oh, rebuilding okay. Detroit. So we mm-hmm. just actually talked about Detroit just a few days ago. That's great uh, for the podcast. But what was Detroit like then for you and coming into the city? Well, it was um, it was starting its period of decline, right? The um, um, actually the uh, the suburb that I grew up in had the 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 region's first major regional mall which was built the year I was born in 1955. Wow. It's called Northland Mall. And that was a big dramatic thing for its time. Um, and then <clears throat> in the late, well, 1967, the, the riots hit the city, as they did many cities across the country. It happened there a year earlier than many cities. Uh-huh. And that started a kind of serious period of decline in the city. And so I graduated from high school only six years later. Um, and so the city was seeing a decline and the general mood amongst my colleagues, my friends, my family was, just leave. Why is anybody? Why would anybody be interested in the city? Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted to be into. There was just this massive uh, exodus from cities in general, including places like San, San Francisco. Um, nothing like the scale of Detroit, but but there was essentially an anti-urban mood yeah. that started then and probably lasted three decades in most of the U.S. Some would argue it's still happening in some ways, but I, I really question that given the growth of our central cities these days. I think it's different because the anti-urban move then was equal to the urbanization move today. The walk to coffee used to be, please right. let me go drive to right. to the Acme Market or something. Right, right. Or Dunkin' Donuts, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So then school was in Detroit. Uh, high school was in Detroit, and then I went to the University of Michigan uh, undergrad, studied architecture. Uh-huh. Um, after that, I worked for a large architectural engineering firm in Detroit for two years, um, which has a long history in Detroit. And Albert Kahn Associates, kind of a well-known firm in that Mr. Kahn, back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, worked for the auto industry and developed some of the more innovative designs for manufacturing facilities um, that were quite interesting and many of which are quite beautiful actually. But what I discovered working for the firm was that while I love architecture, I love design, I had no talent for it and I, and the practice of it, the actual practice of day-to-day architecture didn't interest me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I became to realize that that I was more interested in kind of how buildings went together, how places came together Stayed in architecture as uh, an academic career, but with an emphasis on urban design at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, which had a program at the time that was more focused on 
what we called man-environment systems, kind of the interaction between human behavior and the environment. And in fact, the program was chaired by an environmental psychologist, which was quite interesting in and of itself. Right. So wait, man environments, it's like a yeah, man door. We have a man a door bit. in our garage door. Right. It's, it's, it's all about the interaction of human behavior and the environment and how, one, how each affects the other. Uh-huh. There's very specific research that goes on, for example, about very specific groups, such as uh, how the elderly react to their environment and how the environment can help the elderly navigate and, and, uh-huh. and, and address kind of their, their health issues as they grow up. But what I was interested in is applying that on an urban scale. And I was interested in saying, okay, how, does, how do cities affect people's behavior? How do people's behavior, how does people, how does the behavior of a citizenry affect the city and how all that goes together? It's a little less tangible, a little more, right. I don't know, woo-woo, if you will. Uh-huh. But it has always been a great fascination to me. And I think that's what kind of gelled my interest in. Yeah, question. Does the, both at the granular level of how does a person of any age relate to their environment versus how do they relate to a city has the thinking changes and and does it change both at i could see how it might have changed at the group level but does it also change at the level of maybe 30 years ago a human being man relates to environment this way but now they relate more open more closed more i think well it's 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 a very complicated question because certainly it's changed although i i actually um at, at a very broad scale when people tell me, you know, I often get the question, and this may be a bit of a digression from uh-huh. your question, but I often get the question whether the current interest in cities is temporary, that when millennials grow up, have children, they'll leave the city. And my response is the current, the current interest in cities is simply going back to the norm. I think it is. Because yes. for 10,000 years of urban history, cities have been growing. And, and the, in fact, the last half of the 20th century was the aberration. You know, which we all experience with the advent of the automobile and the building freeways Suburbs. and people uh-huh. people fleeing cities. And so now I think we're really back to the norm. Um, and, and so I don't believe that this is um, uh, something that's a temporary blip on the in terms of urban history. I think it's actually quite, quite the opposite. Um, but I will say the way we relate to cities has changed. And I actually think it's more related to technology than anything else. Mm-hmm. I think it's people are in cities now because they want to be, not because they have to be. Um, Fair. So it's uh, you know the, 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 I used to get the people commenting that well with the advent of the internet and technology, offices will be no longer necessary places of work because people can work from anywhere. That's true, they can. But we have this extraordinary growth in office space in San Francisco and many cities across the country right now. And and in terms of the public environment and the what some people call um, third places where you know like coffee stores and cafes where people do their work alternatively because that's where people want to be because they want to be around other people. People totally want to be around other people. And it is fascinating. And at different ages, and my favorite word in our household has been walk to coffee. I want to walk to coffee. I don't want to drive to coffee. It's just two different feelings. Absolutely. I used to call that, when I looked at a new apartment, I used to to ask what the coffee infrastructure was like. Very important. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Very important. Okay, so let's keep going. So you graduate from Wisconsin and then you moved to Pittsburgh in urban planning. So talk about that and talk about where Pittsburgh was at that point in time. Fair enough. So Pittsburgh was going through a what they had branded as their kind of second renaissance in the 80s. Um, when I got to Pittsburgh in the early 80s, it had, um, it had the distinction of 
having the third largest number of corporate headquarters in the country after New York and Chicago. Wow. Companies that were not associated with steel at all. I mean, there were all the big steel companies, of course, but there were companies like Westinghouse and Rockwell and Heinz and companies that were, in fact, in many ways, very kind of the tech companies of their time. Mm-hmm. Over the 15 years that I was there, what was interesting is that most of them went away, which was quite quite shocking in and of itself. But um, Pittsburgh, of course, had had been the heart of the steel industry. And I think the number was that at its peak, had 27 operating mills within and adjacent to the city along the rivers. Wow. And every single one of those is gone. There's not one left. Um, and that that dramatic change in the city, of course, had a dramatic impact on what was going on. And um, so we spent a lot of time rethinking whole sections of the city as a result of that. Um, and I worked very closely with the redevelopment agency, which was the first one in the country, actually. And uh, looking at, uh, it goes back to the 40s, but we looked at kind of these large old mill sites and how we should rethink them, how we should replan them. Um, But what Pittsburgh always had going for it was the strength of these great ethnic neighborhoods that were kind of the backbone of the city and really surprisingly did not change much, even with the great upheaval in the economy. I mean, that's not to say that neighborhoods weren't devastated, and some were clearly both inside the city and along the old mill towns outside of the city. But many of those neighborhoods maintain their stability, maintain very low crime rates, which always surprised me given the upheavals in the economy. Right. And, um, and I think it was just the neighborhood cohesion that really made a difference there that, um, that somehow didn't, ha- didn't happen, for example, in Detroit in quite the same way. Um, so Pittsburgh, even with all those changes, didn't experience a major crime wave when I was there, didn't experience the kind of social upheavals. I mean, clearly it was traumatic for the population. I'm not trying to minimize it. What was unemployment that. like in those neighborhoods? Was blue um, collar? The, 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 well, some of this, what was interesting about that region is that many of the mills were in towns separate from the city itself. The mills completely defined the town, right? It was a town right. around the mill. And so in many of those small mill towns, the population basically just disappeared. I mean, literally 80% drops in population and that kind of thing when those mills closed. Mm-hmm. Um, but within the city, because of its size and because of these neighborhoods, it was it actually had a – it was more tempered because of the, the, the quality of those neighborhoods and some of the other activities that were happening, especially with the universities, uh-huh. that were starting to replace, of course, the mills as the primary employers. But you said that, uh, that it was the third – largest corporate headquarters, which I now hear may be Houston. So it's just, that, life has changed. That, may, that wouldn't surprise me, yeah. They all moved to Houston. But it wasn't just the mills that left, but the educational yeah. institutions remained, and that created the stability and the need for – and the ability to reinvest. Yes. I mean, I should clarify. I mean, while – even with the mills leaving, there were also major corporate changes that happened. The one I do remember was that Gulf Oil was was headquartered in Pittsburgh uh-huh. in a spectacular downtown Hart Deco high-rise and were bought was bought by Chevron here in the Bay Area and literally overnight vacated a 44-story building in downtown Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things were happening at that same time period while the mills were closing, which was incredible, right? Right. So all that's to say the population, of course, did drop very dramatically like it did in Detroit. The economy changed dramatically. Employment went down. But the social upheaval didn't happen in quite as much, quite the same way, which has always been 
a little bit of a conundrum to me why that didn't happen to me, okay. Frank. And and what was what this is where you learned your craft. So what mm-hmm. were you doing during that time, or what was the craft of urban planning? The what was government and planning doing to to contribute to that outcome? I uh, got there in the early '80s and worked under a couple of uh, a couple of very good mentors. Um, the planning director at that time, Bob Lurcott, was was really terrific and. He had put together a great team, and one and one of the things that I always appreciated about the department when I got there was the, the interdisciplinary nature of it. Mm-hmm. So we had an economics planner, we had transportation planner, we had community planners. In fact, I think there were seven of them who were assigned to neighborhoods, in much the same way I'm just now starting to do again here in San Francisco. Um, and we did the city's capital budget within the planning department, which was a sort of traditional function right. of planning departments that has mostly now gone away. Uh-huh. Really, what what was great about that time for me as a young planner just starting was learning that planning was extraordinarily broad and general and, 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 and is a kind of a generalized profession in that we have to know a little about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It's not just about buildings and design and whatever. It's, it's about the, the economy of the city and it's about public spaces and it's about transportation and it's about the price of housing and all of those things. That really is um, kind of the the mix of of what we have to deal with, mm-hmm. and it, that and that was an enormous lesson for me. Got it. And when you started in this, um, government was this is not the right way to ask the question, but government was a higher calling then in society than government is as a calling today. Did I? Is, am I? I don't know how to pose this. And I remember when I graduated college, government was a place to go. You're going to make a difference. You're going to make change. I think certainly the the uh, when I got there, there was it had the kind of distrust of government had had started. Uh-huh. I always attribute it to Vietnam and the Watergate years, but it, so it had started well into the '80s. But it certainly has gotten worse since. I mean, the kind of um, backlash toward government is, and the and the kind of notion that you work in government if you can't work anywhere else. Right. Um, it was really, uh, is something that has been, it's always been a personal frustration to me. I, I find myself, I think a lot about this now as I'm getting, getting on in years, yes. as they say. And I, and I, I am extraordinarily lucky to have found this spot because I, I do believe it was, it was absolutely the right fit for me. And I never, and, and I didn't know that going in. Right. I took this job because it was an interesting job. They paid pretty well compared to architects. <laughs> and I was interested in urban design. And I, they had a title of a position called urban designer. And I thought, what a cool thing. I think I'll take that job. That's <laughs> that it, it, right there. <laughs> so, so what I want to hear is let's kind of walk through how you rose in the profession of urban design. So you start in Pittsburgh. Then you went to Seattle. And when you went to Seattle, what were the challenges? How were they different? And where were you in your career? So it's kind of like a career question, but also what was going on in Seattle and what years was that? So I, I spent almost 15 years in Pittsburgh. You know, I, I started out as what we would call here a planner two, which is kind of the starting classification, if you will, right. for most planners. And uh, I think my title when I left was something like, uh, it wasn't assistant director. It was something I can't remember exactly. Okay, yeah. But but the point is that I um, I I... Became it was essentially before I left, I was kind of in charge of the whole development review process for uh-huh. the city, um, as well as um, had 
manage the process to completely rewrite the city zoning ordinance, which had which dated back to the 50s. And uh, we were in a multi-year process, which didn't end. It was, wasn't quite done when I left, but it, there were a number of reasons why it was the right time for me to leave. And um, so I had developed some really strong contacts there, some strong relationships. And um, But I just kind of felt like it was career-wise I had done what I could do uh-huh. for myself. So I didn't go right to Seattle. I did six months in Rome. Um, I gave myself planning a Planning sub- in Rome or no? no having a no, good time. P- playing in Rome, okay, actually. Good. <laughs> Much more fun. And, and frankly, I went with just to clear my head, and I had really no idea what I was going to do. Uh-huh. And it's one of the reasons I'm very generous when my staff here asks for a sabbatical because I think it's a great, healthy thing to do. Um, and in the, while I was there, I mean, it's a long story that I won't get into, but a position opened up in Seattle, which was essentially um, to head up a new design office for the city within the government, uh-huh. within city government. Um, and Seattle was a city that I was very fond of and um, was a city that I knew was growing dramatically at the time, but had not paid a whole lot of attention to the, if you will, the public realm, or the streets and open space system of the city. And that this position... Was, a, was focused on that environment for the first time. It was a brand new position, was a newly funded office. Right. I think it was five or six people only. Okay. But, it was, but it, was, it was impressive enough that it attracted me, and that's what took me there. Uh-huh. And we won't fast forward, but you were there for 10 years. So talk about the bookends of that period of time in Seattle, what the challenges you faced, what opportunities you had, and what you got to do. So the first half of my time there, roughly, was running this office that we called City Design, and that not only staffed a group of urban designers, but also was I was the director of what's called the Seattle Design Commission, uh-huh. which is an entity that looks at public projects. Um, halfway through my tenure, um, and, and I should say the city had started its growth period, of course. Um, it was it, much like San Francisco, the city was seeing growth in the late 90s. Uh, did see the, the slowdown, of course, with the um, dot-com uh, crash uh-huh. in the late 90s. But um, that was sort of just peaking when I got there. But there was a lot of neighborhood planning going on because of uh, what had happened at the state level, uh, which was pretty dramatic for its time. The state of Washington, like the state of Oregon, had established a completely different construct for how cities were to develop zoning and growth, what they called the Growth Management Act. Uh-huh. And it required major cities and counties to literally draw a boundary, an urban growth boundary, which, of course, which is what King County has, did. And it required us to think very differently about how our, all of our cities grew, not just the large cities. Because the, what the state said to us was, you don't have a choice of whether you, can, you will grow or not. With growth is coming. You have a choice to, to say how that will happen. So you have to accept a certain amount of growth, and they literally sort of gave cities their kind of growth target numbers. You have to accept this growth, but you can decide how and where it goes within your boundaries. Uh-huh. Um, and so th- what that did is force the city to go through this intensive neighborhood planning process that was sort of th- probably 75% done but when I got there. But that, what that did precipitate was this huge round of public investment in transit, in libraries, in the new city hall, in parks, and 
all of these things that were kind of coming out of that growth and that came out of those neighborhood plans. Uh-huh. And they wouldn't just say, well, it's okay to grow outside our boundaries in the suburbs? Was yeah. that not available? Or the, the, the boundary was a county boundary. King County quite, is quite large geographically. Right. And there's literally a line that, you, that something like 95% of all development has to happen within that line. Now, you can imagine the property owners outside of that line being pretty unhappy about what their land values right. <laughs> uh, happened at that time. But, but that, that's, that was what the construct was, and that's both in Washington and Oregon. That, that, and they were the first states to do that. Uh-huh. Other states have since copied portions of that. Um, but what it did is it forced this, the city and most of the other urban areas in the state to grow up instead of out. Right. Right. And so it forced us to do some really serious planning about how we were going to do that. And did that did the population agree with that? Because in the Bay was, Area, which we'll get to soon, it, it, they don't want to grow up. So there's just the answer is no versus it's going to happen anyhow. The di- and we can talk about it when we go talk about the Bay Area. But the difference is that the, the state did not give cities the option of saying no to the growth. So the people are coming. You just got to deal with it now. So here, cities, you can tell us, you can manage how you do that growth, but you can't say no to the growth. Fair deal. Anyway, so, I mean, what happened is, and, and during my tenure is that I, I, we got a lot of attention focusing, because of all the growth, uh, focusing on the public environment, as I mentioned, the public realm, as we like to call it, the streets, and thinking about streets differently, and thinking about open spaces differently. And, and then about halfway through my time there, there was um, a, a new mayor came in, Greg Nichols, and he did some major reorganization. And he merged a, a, a planning policy office, essentially a long-range planning office, which was a separate department with the permitting office. Sorry. Got it. It's okay. And, um, and so I was named the planning director of that long-range planning office. Uh-huh. This would have been, I don't know, mid-2000s, I guess. And so my title was planning director, but I was really only in charge of what we call long-range planning. Um, and, and at that point, um, there was a, a much, you know, the, the kind of movement, the millennial movement to cities was starting, the baby boomer interest in cities was starting. And so we really started to embrace this notion of taking the kind of density of the city to the next level. I want to talk about the contrast between Seattle and San Francisco. And Please. so let me give some numbers. And, and you, then move, well, you then moved here in 08 mm-hmm. to take over the planning department here. Excuse me, correct. Okay, so here's a statistic that I've read, and I'm going to get this probably right. So between 2010 and 2016, San Francisco added 15,000 apartment units to Seattle's 32,000 units, and it added 38,000 new homes versus Seattle's 70,000 new homes. So 2x Seattle to San Francisco Mm -hmm. in a city with a third fewer people— and job growth moving in about the same direction. I think that those numbers sound about right, yeah. So you move to this environment where we got all <laughs> these people coming and no spigot handling them very well. This right. is a challenge that I might not want to take, but you did. <laughs> the most common greeting I got when I, when I met folks here in San Francisco was, congratulations and my condolences. <laughs> exactly. So A, what brought you here? And what did you find, and then how have you approached these challenges? I, I will uh, preface that with a, with a funny story. Um, when I was in Seattle, a report, you know, a report crossed my desk, which many reports do, and I typically set them aside. This one was a spur report 
this you know San Francisco based organization right that had done an analysis of the San Francisco planning uh, department and the building department at the time and it was absolutely damning of those two agencies and it was like extraordinarily critical of both planning and building at that time this report would have been my guess is somewhere around 2005 2004 something like that and I and for reasons that I'll never remember I actually sat down and read this report set it aside and said, that's a place I'll never go. <laughs> and then? <laughs> and then four, fast forward four years, and I don't know what possessed me. But no, I mean, um, a it was couple the things. Books. It was clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, I, it, this is a very special city. And I, you know, as much as I love Seattle, and I think Seattle has done some things much more um, efficiently, much more thoughtfully than we have in recent years, but I will also say that this is a pretty special place that is not like anywhere else. And it was a great honor to be asked. And secondly, there, there's a great legacy of planning here that is frankly, in many ways, much more sophisticated than, than the planning that was happening in Seattle. Um, you know, if you look at the downtown plan here, for example, that was adopted in 1985, that is a, in, you know, as a planning geek, that's one of the seminal pieces of American city planning, in really? my opinion. Absolutely. I mean, and it was, it's never, talk about the, well, I mean, means. it shaped downtown, it shaped downtown San Francisco would not be anywhere nearly as strong, as active, as economically vital as it is if that plan hadn't been adopted. I mean, it created everything from, uh, the, the the move toward all of the development in the Trans Bay was really started in that in that plan. It it created a situation where Union Square and and Chinatown, which were uh, Chinatown plan, is technically a separate process, but it was all grew out of that thinking that those neighborhoods needed to remain low rise and and essentially maintain their physical character. Mm-hmm. And it created a system to get into the weeds a little bit. It created sure. the system of transfer of development rights that when office buildings were to be built downtown, the rights would be purchased from places like Union Square and Chinatown and transferred to other parts of downtown. So it both maintained the quality of those neighborhoods and and enabled the growth where it should go. Uh And it also addressed, and it also did something that, you know, seems simple and straightforward and obvious today, but in the 80s, people weren't thinking this way. It basically created these very high density development zones around the BART stations. Mm-hmm. And, and if you look at a map of the zoning of downtown today, there's almost an exact match between a 10-minute walk around the BART stations and, and where the highest density development is. How much of that plan thought forward to residential being part of the downtown it's mix It's a really or good not? question. It's a really good question. The residential was, was thought about, and, but nobody imagined the amount of downtown residential that we had today. There, the assumption at that time is that downtown would remain primarily an office zone. Uh-huh. And, um, but at the same time, there was this concern about housing. There was this, there was a desire to attract housing to downtown. Um, and if you look at some of the uh, materials from the time, there were, we were looking at ways of, of attracting housing downtown. And we even had to monitor housing and where it was going and that sort of thing in the plan. Um, but it, um, it did not anticipate the kind of downtown housing growth that we've had since. And therefore, was it hard? To, has it been overly hard to fit that in? And has that been part of the backlash against development, which is 
No, uh, well, no. I think it actually is quite different. I mean, because we we because the city I shouldn't say we I wasn't here, of course, but because the city at that time recognized the value of people living downtown, it actually made it downtown housing was certainly allowed. There was no restrictions against it. Okay. What happened since the plan was adopted was the first kind of residentially focused plan was adopted, I think, in 2005, which was the Rincon Hill plan, right? which was virtually entirely housing, uh-huh. right immediately adjacent to downtown, with the thinking being that that adjacency is what makes it work, right? Mm-hmm. And it's turned out to be, by the way, entirely true. Absolutely. And then that was followed by the first Transbay plan, when the Embarcadero Freeway came down with all those parcels that opened up primarily, not exclusively, but primarily housing as well. Mm-hmm. So while the downtown plan itself of 85 didn't have such a strong focus on housing, the following plans that are very close in certainly did. Mm-hmm. So talk about when you came to this place that the report had said was one of the worst environments or or whatever, were you given some promises that you could make the system work internally, just in terms of how the bureaucracy works. And we'll talk about externally with the. Was I given promises? No. I, I was said, this is, you've go inherited this, go <laughs> figure this out. No, but I, but look, but when I got here, I will say that this, a lot of the work to improve the department had already happened. Dean mm-hmm. Macris came in as director before me, and Dean had been director many years before. And, but he, at, at Mayor Newsom's request, came out of retirement to manage uh-huh. the department during uh, Mayor Newsom's first term. Right. And uh, I, th- I think the story was something like that he agreed to take this on for a few months and ended up staying for three years. <laughs> but Dean had already really gotten a good handle on kind of fixing some of the kind of structural issues of the department, some of the personnel things that had happened. And uh, so that was on its way when I got here. One more question about Please. how the bureaucracy works is as you've tackled that and try to make the internal organization work better. Mm-hmm. And, and going back to the prior question of where in the pecking order is, is government service sit, how do, you, how do you solve the problem? How do you make a bureaucracy with the tools that you have, just the internal work? How do you uh, bring in and recruit people to join the organization? Are they here for a long time, short time, mid time? Just talk about some of those challenges and then we'll get into some of the issues. Certainly, there's the challenge of the bureaucracy, right? And and one of the, I guess, just I had two cultural shifts in my career. One was coming from the east to the west coast, and the west coast. One of the major cultural shock pieces of cultural shock that I got when I got to the west coast was the the difference in um, reliance on government. Mm-hmm. Local government is bigger here. And the West Coast, and there is more expected of local government than in the East. Really, um, and, and I haven't, frankly, I haven't run the numbers, but I do, I do believe that's that's true. And I, I'm not sure entirely the cause of it. Other, um, there are certainly more requirements, especially around the environmental arena. Yep, um, of course. I mean, we didn't, we had no equivalent of environmental review in Pennsylvania. It didn't even exist, and I don't think it exists today. Um, and I have 35 people here who do just that, for example. So there's that whole thing. And then, but coming from Seattle to San Francisco, because San Francisco is both a city and a county and has an unusually large employee base, right? There are 30,000 employees who work for the city and county of San Francisco. I think in Seattle there were 12,000 or something. Mm. So the bureaucracy itself is just a lot bigger. 
And it's also, um, there is an interesting kind of dichotomy here in that department heads, because I think of the size of the bureaucracy, frankly, we have a, a fair amount of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more than in other cities that I worked. Uh, having said that, there is way more focus on land use and, and uh, development issues and planning in San Francisco by the general community than there was in the other cities. There, this is the only city I know of where these issues rise to people's highest level of concern and consciousness. Right. Um, and there are so many people who are knowledgeable and interested in these issues. So that kind of tempers anything that I might, you know, it kind of tempers and gives us um, a base of support in many ways, as well as a, as well as a lot of pushback. Yeah. So, and talk about, so we'll start to get to issues, but I'm so curious, what are those popular interests in what it is you're doing? Is this nimbyism? Is it yimbyism? Is it developers? Is it I'm a shopkeeper and I want to keep this block the same. What what are all of those diverse interests and how do you deal yes. with them and what are their voices? Yes, yes, and yes. It's all of those. I mean, I you know what there's a long um, tradition here of people being extraordinarily engaged in these issues. Right. Um, the shopkeeper, the the NIMBY, the YIMBY, the developer, the architect, whoever, and there's a much higher level of engagement here than in the other cities. And what percentage of the engagement and the discussion would you say is, if you take the Seattle hat for a minute and say, we're going to densify one way or the other, we have to build something, let's do it right, versus no. <laughs> so think of those two extremes. I don't, I, don't, I mean, to be fair, there, there is a lot of pushback in Seattle. And, and then from what I understand, it's growing with all of the development there. There is right. more, more pushback, to be fair. It's not it's quite as simple as I've laid it out. But nonetheless, um, I do think that the, um, that the acceptance of a certain amount of growth happened in Seattle because of the way the state constructed what what's called the Growth Management right. Act, which became the guiding document for how any city does this stuff. Uh-huh. And that didn't happen here. And and there has been, and I think it's there's also, um, and I, and I'll be honest, I think part of the aversion to change here is because this place is extraordinarily charming. Mm-hmm. You know, it just is. I mean, it's a, a beautiful city in a beautiful setting, and um, people are averse to change in ways that is that is stronger than the other cities that I've been. And, and how much of that is dollars and cents stuff and how much of it is I just love my alleyway? It's both. I do really do believe that much of it, that a good part of it is why are you changing this wonderful place I live in, right? right? There's certainly those who are, are doing, you know, are opposing growth to protect property values, or at least they think that's what they're doing. And Mm -hmm. there are others who are opposing growth because of preservation issues, for example, and they're using preservation both because they're either because they're interested in preservation or because they're using it as a tool. Right. Stop growth. There's, there's those folks. All of those things happen here. Uh And I don't, it's, I, um, I don't want to kind of just assume that folks who are interested in protecting the city are, you know, sort of the NIMBYs and growth is a bad thing. I, there, I think it, it, there's a broad spectrum of who those folks really are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we have the classic kind of NIMBYs who just don't want anything to change around them and they want to protect their home values. But I think that there's a whole lot of people who are in different, who are in different places on that issue. Uh-huh. So talk about 
translating that into solving some problems, and I'll name a few in San Francisco, and I'm a San Francisco resident. Uh, I, I have the luxury, I think the greatest luxury in my life that I've ever experienced is the luxury of walking to work. I've said this on the podcast before, so the the beauty of a 25-minute walk in the morning, lollygagging through an extraordinary neighborhood actually filled with tourists too because mm-hmm. they want to be in that same charming place. Mm-hmm. It is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So let's play a couple of these together. We have a housing affordability problem. We have low-income residents who don't have enough subsidized housing and need subsidized housing. We have the missing middle Mm. residents for whom nothing's being created and their rents are going up extraordinarily because Mm -hmm. of the dynamics of the city. We have new luxury happening here in the city and there's not enough being built. Just take housing and then we have homelessness as bad, if that's the right word, as in any city and in your face as anywhere else. And gosh, if I leave my car outside at night goodbye to a window at least one every three nights. Even though I, I'm involved with a broad range of issues, I'm not sure I can resolve <laughs> all those issues for you in the next hour, Matt. But, but, but how do you address those things? And how does the public discourse start to approach real solutions about that versus a gridlock about that? The housing crisis is truly a crisis. I don't think there's any question about it. Um, just to give you one, one brief stat on this, we looked at 50 years of housing production in the in the Bay Area, um, uh-huh. specifically in the nine counties that touch the Bay. And every decade, we built less housing than the previous decade. I think, with one exception, one minor exception. So we're on a we're on a path now to build in this decade half the number of housing units we built in the 1970s. Wow, it was an indication of people's aversion to change, about wanting to protect this beautiful place, about. Property values, all those things. I think they're all wrapped in there somewhere. But that's mm-hmm. that's the actual production numbers which have really created this crisis. But we also realize, you know, um, that what we did not anticipate, and I think as planners and I think as governments, what we did not anticipate was the extraordinary um, and pace of change after the recession, right? So. It, look, I mean, it's fair to say that the cost of housing has, has been an issue here for years. It's, this isn't just something that's happened in the last 10 years. This has been going on for right. probably 30 years or more. But the last decade has taken us all by surprise. And I, and I do think that um, we did not anticipate the turnaround from the recession as quickly as it happened uh-huh. um, and the amazing job growth. I mean, I see it as San Francisco as this perfect storm, and the perfect storm is a combination of two factors. One is the renewed interest in cities, particularly by millennials, but also by baby boomers. And I, and I and if you look at a at, at a population chart, those two are those two cohorts are the largest cohorts in the American population. Right. And those are the folks who are driving urban growth. Those that interest coupled with the extraordinary explosion of the technology industry. Um, right as millennials were looking for jobs. So as a, as a percentage growth, we've experienced as a region more growth than any region in the country. 600,000 jobs, I think, roughly, maybe more in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've built, what, 60, somewhere now between 60 and 70,000 housing units in that same time period. Something in there doesn't Something in there work. doesn't quite work. Um, we can talk about hacker hostels at some point in the conversation, but um, hacker hostels. I'll make a note. 
Uh-huh. So it's a combination of that incredible pace of change, particularly job growth, with this interest in cities. And we weren't ready as a government, I don't think, and, and certainly as a planning department. Now, what I will say is that we are now building more housing than we have in decades. I have 7,000 under construction. In the last three years, we have more than met the mayor's we're more than met, uh, are on pace to meet the mayor's goal, Mayor Lee's goal of building 30,000 in six years, right? Okay. The primary reason from our side of that equation that that is happening is because of the neighborhood plans that were underway and that were adopted just before the recession. Mm-hmm. Primarily the Eastern Neighborhood Plan, the Market Octavia Plans. And those plans, not only after years of process, directed growth to happen in certain areas, they also allowed us to streamline the approval process, particularly mm-hmm. the environmental review process. Mm-hmm. And that's what enabled ma- the vast majority of this housing to happen. I mean, if if we were living under the old construct and had to go through this um, the same environmental review process and the same process for these projects that had happened before... I, I would dare to say that half of these units would still be in the review process. So we really, I mean, I, I, th- those plans really do make a difference. Mm-hmm. So and the numbers are where they are, but the numbers are still up. They're still low. low. They're still low. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to argue that they're not. Now, I, you know, we didn't get into kind of why Seattle kind of far exceeded those numbers. And I think there are some conditions in Seattle that were unique to Seattle because there's very few cities that ha- that are in much better shape than we are, at least in northern tier cities. I mean, cities in the south in Texas, the, the path to the building is much, much, much easier than right. it is up, up here. And so clearly we're not matching that growth. But, but in, if you compare us to Denver or Boston or New York or Washington, it, it's a very similar kind of um, job housing balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Seattle is is doing much better than almost any, I think, than any of those cities. Um, there's some unique conditions on the ground in Seattle and that we can go into if you'd like at some point. But right. but having said all that, um, I think there's both the the, the, the pushback on development that still happens here. It's, it's hard to get stuff entitled. I think there is the cumbersome process still in California that happens here that is you know, it's it's people blame CEQA, you know, the California Environmental Quality Act is, you know, it's considered by many a four-letter word here. And right. uh, I actually, the, the, the thing that really is the issue is that CEQA is, the, is not looking at environmental protections. It's actually how it's done. And what is never looked at, frankly, is the environmental outcomes that occur as a result of a CEQA process to see whether they've actually improved as a result of it. Uh-huh. And I think that's what, that's the flaw that we need to address. And if one actually looked at the outcomes, one would look at CEQA differently and think about Probably changing. Oh, it flips it on its head. Cause... Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I don't, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons why the housing pace here is slower than, than other places. But I think the primary reason is kind of the cautiousness that has been built up over time. And that has actually been built into our codes and our review processes, and so on. Um, that makes it that makes it super challenging to actually get into something built. Mm-hmm. But I but I also want to say, and, and maybe it's not a, maybe it's not correct to say it's a the primary reason, but it's one of the reasons. Um, there's also um, it's also a challenge to get things built after they're approved, 
And we're finding more and more in the city in particular that that's becoming the case now. Uh-huh. And part of it is the cost of construction. Um, and part of it is the availability of capital. And I don't understand the capital markets as well as I should. Right. Um, and I'm not, and, and some of that equation is I don't understand, but I have a growing backlog of projects that are fully approved that are not getting built. Cost of construction, cost of capital. At the end of the day, it has to make money. And you think developers, we have these kind of stereotypes of developers as the fat cats with cigars in their mouths. Right. And right. They're putting up a lot of risk capital, a lot of opportunity costs, and a lot of time. They are, but the cost of construction and the availability of is a fairly recent problem in this scheme of things. Fair deal. Um, what has happened in the last two years, as I understand it, is that rents have, and when the city anyway, have essentially stabilized, uh-huh. but the cost of construction is still going up. So that is th- that is causing kind of a mismatch, if you will, between revenues and expenses. Uh-huh. Um, but I, th- I think it's more than that, and I. Um, I mean, there are projects that we've approved seven, eight years ago that are still not moving forward, larger projects. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm concerned about that and that growing backlog of stuff that's been fully approved that isn't getting built. And I don't fully understand the reasons for all and that. And is that not getting built in residential while the office buildings are being built? So the demand increases and the supply on the residential side decre- or stays the same? Um, well, yes and no. I mean, what's not getting built is the, the kind of large multi-building projects uh-huh. that require new infrastructure. And I think the infrastructure is a piece of their puzzle that's causing uh-huh. this delay, but it's not the only issue. Um, the vast majority of office space is being built you know, within existing, um, basically on a parcel-by-parcel basis in existing environments. So there's, it's, it's, building, it's being built as infill development. It's right. not a new. It's not you know the shipyard, which is you know seven hundred or thousand acres of land that's being redeveloped. But I mean, look the the office there's with the job growth and the growth in the technology companies, they are driving that office growth in ways that it were, we never would have anticipated five years ago. Let's stick for a few more minutes on San Francisco and then kind of move towards wrapping up. But in San Francisco, what we're talking mostly about residential. Any other headlines in your time here and the challenges that you faced and the challenges that this city has to reach its potential from a development standpoint and a planning standpoint? Well, I appreciate you saying that because it's it, it, one of the things that I have, uh, I mentioned early, earlier that when I was in Pittsburgh, we had this already very broad array of planner expertise, if you will, right. within a very small department. And um, within my 15 years in Pittsburgh, virtually all of that went away. Uh-huh. Um, and we were just folk, we almost became a, just primarily a permitting agency, which was, which was very frustrating to me yeah. to see all that go away. So it has been important for me to kind of re to in San Francisco when I've had the opportunity to kind of rebuild some functions in the department. I shouldn't say rebuild, but to actually um, take on some functions that go beyond the permitting role. Uh-huh. So. Um, we have, for example, developed a small transportation planning team, and we are leading the city's long-range transportation planning efforts right now, which I think is of necessity housed in a planning agency so that we uh-huh. understand the connection between land use and, and transportation. Um, we are co-leading the city's efforts on sea level rise because who knew that 15 years ago that Wasn't we had to think f- about sea level rise, right? <laughs> I have to think about sea level rise. In fact, just yesterday, I saw these maps for the first time that have that we're not within our lifetimes. We will have a problem. I mean, I saw maps that look at inundation or storm surge. I should say it's not inundation. Right. 
in 2030, which is only 12 years away, and it affects some serious areas of the city. Uh, so we are getting involved very much in that. We are co-leading the Mayor's Sea Level Rise Task Force, convening about a group of about 13 departments looking at city facilities and the vulnerabilities of those facilities across the board. Right. Um, that's something I never even yeah, anticipated 10 years ago. I mean, who knew, right? Um, uh, and and so we're and then then I have built what I call a community development team in the department, and this is really something I'm very passionate about. Started this about three years ago. Our main our our first major push was in the Mission District, which is the neighborhood that has experienced the, the most, most upheaval change. and change. Uh-huh. Happened to live there um, as well, and um, I have come to believe very strongly, Matt, that that we can do development without displacement. And I have colleagues who think I'm smoking something when I say that, who say, tell me that these are these are global economic forces. You can't change them. Gentrification is inevitable. Displacement is inevitable. And my response is, I don't buy that. And I don't buy that for two reasons. One is that when the areas of the city where we have seen the least actual displacement, and I do think it's a, there's a big distinction between displacement and gentrification, although those two terms are used right. interchangeably. Uh-oh, displacement different. is, gentrification is the kind of the, the general raising of incomes of an area. You know, there's, there's the, 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 the kind of economic and demographic changes that happen when a neighborhood becomes wealthier. One's a percentage and one's an absolute number. If you stabilize the number of spot of, of home of, of residents who are moderate income but you increase the overall right population, you're going to have gentrification by but you may not have displacement that's exactly right so does that work can you do it that's the question and i believe you can and if you look at those neighborhoods that have had the largest amount of new development well the one neighborhood that has which is south of market right. there's been the least displacement uh-huh I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but there has been far less displacement, far fewer evictions than there is in almost anywhere on the city. I'm thinking of South of Market, and I'm trying to think of the homeless and SRO places. They've stayed the same. Are you saying that that stayed the same, but there's high rises next to it? The homeless population is the homeless situation is a completely different, a completely different issue, in my opinion, and is and is partially, but only partially, related to the cost of housing. Uh-huh. Right, and it's being experienced particularly badly in California, on the West Coast. But if you, um, just as a side note, the San Francisco homeless population has actually been the same for about twenty years. Really, it's become more visible, and the population, in some ways, my, many people's estimation is becoming more aggressive. But I actually has to do. Ha, I think that has to do with drug use and 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 mental health issues as much as anything. Right. The, the homeless population in Los Angeles, as an example, is now, as I understand it, 55,000 people. We have about 7,500 on the streets in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it's, it's, nothing can justify being in the wealthiest city in the country having 75,000 people on the street. It's just outrageous. But I don't think it's related to the issues that I just talked about, right? I mean, it, it's related certainly to the cost of housing and people are literally getting priced out of a living place, which is horrible, and that's some of the problem. Right. But I think there's far other, bigger, bigger issues that are around homelessness. Problems. Anyway, so uh, the displacement issue, I think, um, the, I do think that growth, that building matters because the, the argument we have with many parts of the city, particularly the eastern part of the city where people are so concerned that all the growth is happening there in places like the Mission and South of Market, and um, is is that market rate development itself causes displacement. That's the argument. And 
there, w- there has been the belief, although it's being tempered somewhat, that the law of supply and demand does not apply to housing in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That doesn't matter if you build, the prices will still go up. This, it, it, it will never. So I actually believe that part of the problem in the Mission District, and I, this is, and I've developed strong relationships with folks in that neighborhood for the last three years, so I'm always cautious when I say this, but I do believe, and they've heard me say it, that part of the problem is that we have not built enough housing in the Mission. Mm-hmm. It is the neighborhood of choice for the millennial generation, and they will move there whether we build new housing or not. And they are generally more; they generally have more disposable income than the existing population. So they are they find ways because of property owners to push people out, not intentionally, but that's what happens. And if we had built more housing, we could have taken some pressure off the existing housing stock and kept more people in their homes. But that's not the only you're not going to just build your way out of this problem. It's part of the solution. Right. And this is where I take exception to the Yimbies who think just build, 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 and everybody's problems is solved and we'll have world, world peace. That's mm-hmm. nonsense. I mean, so we have started a whole program in the mission that we have been convening for three years now called the Mission Action Plan 2020, which which lays out 60 or 70 strategies that tries to stabilize that neighborhood and very specific things that have nothing to do with the traditional role of planners. Right. You know, anti-displacement efforts such as um, such as eviction control measures and tenant counseling measures and ways of keeping people in their homes and in their businesses. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason that I'm optimistic about this issue is because we have never done that in any scale in San Francisco or anywhere else, for example, as, as far as I can tell. I mean, we've never done it in a coordinated way saying, how can we stabilize these neighborhoods and allow them to grow at the same time? It feels like you're getting back, back to Pittsburgh with these old f- neighborhoods with fabric that make sense. My daughter would summarize that particular dynamic in question with how do the existing residents get to keep their 50-cent cup of coffee because yeah. the yuppies will pay for a three-buck cup of coffee? <laughs> Is there an answer to that? Where can conundrum? I find a three-buck cup of coffee? I'd like to find that place. That's long gone. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, essentially, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, I mean, look, the, you know, the argument, and I get this, is that even if we, even if not one person lost their existing home through an eviction or whatever, right, and you allow wealthier people to move into your, their neighborhood, the fifty cent cup of coffee will go away anyway because that because the three dollar or four dollar or five dollar coffee will replace it just right. because there's more people with money in that neighborhood, and uh-huh. I get that. But that doesn't mean there aren't things we can do on the commercial level. Right. I can't tell people how much they can charge for a cup of coffee, but I can try to maintain neighborhood serving businesses um, in, in ways that we really haven't tried in the past. Uh-huh. Gosh, I want to get into that conversation too, but we're going to run out of time. So the opening comment to this discussion was that you're representing, you're talking about your career and Talking about San Francisco, we've talked about Seattle, we've talked about Pittsburgh, Detroit, but you're also kind of talking on behalf to our listeners here uh, for the planning profession and the people in government who spend their lives working this side of the equation. Mm -hmm. Any general comments and last words on that subject? Well, I think... The profession has really matured, and, and certainly the last 30 years. And uh, I have the great honor of convening with my colleagues in the 30 largest cities every year mm-hmm. in um, in Cambridge. And uh, we we have great conversations and kind of 
kind of learn a lot from each other. Um, on the one hand, I will say that when I talk about some of our practices in San Francisco, people just shake their head and <laughs> say, you do what? <laughs> um, on the other hand, we share a lot of these issues. Um, the, the missing middle that you referred to earlier, we didn't get a chance to talk about it much, is an is a issue all across the country right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, the kind of how to rebuild the middle class in our cities is a huge problem. Because virtually no housing is being built at that level. Uh-huh. For, because for because of the the economics of housing, um, that's a huge issue. Um, transportation is 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 a close second to the housing crisis in most of our cities. And if uh-huh. you pick up the New York Times, you'll see that the New York transit system is suffering from some of the same Ill, ills that Muni is. That and the same with the metro system in DC, DC right? Boston, the oldest transit system in the country. So we have uh, we share those issues, we share those concerns, and mon- and much of it. Um, Interestingly enough, um, you know, is has been twenty years of disinvestment by the federal government in cities, right? Or perhaps more than twenty years. Um, and so we are all struggling with that issue of how to replace that funding, how to replace that interest. So, what, as planners, what we've had to do is become um, financial counselors, if you will, and right. financial uh, experts. Um, you know, the transit center plan. Um, which I think is one of the city's most successful pieces of planning work, um, by design raised height limits, raised uh, densities in, in ways that would then generate dollars through what we would call land value recapture, right? So it's uh-huh. generating, a, I forget the number exactly, a billion and a half dollars over 25 years for the transit system mm-hmm. coming from private development. So we've had to We've had to kind of learn those practices and become more sophisticated in our knowledge of all of those right. issues. Last question, I've asked each of my uh, guests the question, if you were a young person getting into the real estate industry, getting into wanting to make a difference in our urban and built environments, what would your advice be? My advice, and, and again, this is a, based on my own personal experience, is to get a pretty broad range of experience. And in fact, I usually, when I'm asked that question by someone coming out of school, for example, uh-huh. I, my suggestion is to get both public and private sector experience. If you are interested at all in working in the public sector, um, try to do both. Um, and try to under, and I particularly try to understand the financial um, motivation in the real estate industry, which is something that um, my planners sometimes don't understand. Um, so it's important to understand the kind of the reason that developers and builders do the reasons they do what they do. You have to. And the motivation behind their decisions. Right. Because rightly or wrongly, the vast majority of what gets built is built by private entities. There's some who argue that we should think of housing as an element of our public infrastructure. Right. And, you know, the northern European countries control half of the housing stock in many locations. Um, and, you know, I could argue that Ultimately, the solution to the housing crisis is for the public and nonprofit sectors to take control of a bigger percentage of the housing stock. Uh-huh. If we really wanted to do, to really want to solve this crisis, there's a dollar problem, of course. There is. But the, the reality is that under our current system and for the foreseeable future, we rely on, on, the, on the private sector to build our cities. Mm-hmm. Well, John, thank you very much. This has been a delightful conversation. I appreciate it. It was a great fun, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. 
If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.